couple of quick thoughts as we get started, and they're just uh, things that I want to encourage you to be mindful of. Number one, our brother Abraham uh, Gonzalez and his uh, wife and, and kids, Bernie and, and, the, and the kid girls, are at Renovacion Church this morning, and they will be transitioning more fully over to them over the next couple of weeks. But he's actually preaching this morning at 1130 in their service. And I would just ask for you to be praying for our brother because he's, you know, it's, an, it's, you know, it's a nerving thing when you don't preach often. And so praying for that work and, 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 and also how they might go and serve that church. Um, we'll, they'll be back with us next week and we'll have a time to um, pray over them and send them out with to, to help Juan Natal and guys at Renovation Church. And we'll be telling you a lot more about that in our members meeting in June. So just get ready for that. It's some really exciting opportunities for us to, to partner with them in some capacity. Um, and second thing is, um, how encouraging is it to see um, more and more of our youth as regular fixtures on our worship team? Um, I, I, it really does my soul uh, good to see that, to see how God is using and raising up our young people to be main fixtures, not just, not just there to kind of do Youth Sunday, but they're actually just part of the normal rhythms of our church, and that we're not a church that makes a big deal about segregating ages, but that we're just blended in because we're one body of Christ, and God is doing something powerful in that. So that's um, something that I would just, I get very excited about. So I just want to kind of bring the two notes to those things this morning um, before we, we jump in. Today's topic, and my title, is, is simply this, The Delightful Duty of Fleeing Sexual Sin. The Delightful Duty of Fleeing Sexual Sin. Um, those words are intentional, and hopefully you'll be able to find out why as we get into our study this morning. In a scholarly journal that, that I try to read, not get to read as much as I want to, called First Things, uh, uh, an author and thinker named Aaron Wren made, uh, back in 2022, made an astute, and I think in my estimation, a correct evaluation about the moment that we live in regarding the intersection of Christianity and culture. There he outlines three movements that's kind of happened over the last, let's just say, 40 years or so. And he says the pre-1994, and I don't really know, I mean, there's a lot of details as to how he gets these dates, and I don't know if we have to necessarily agree with these dates or whatever, but, but I think he makes a very positive, uh, a very important um, evaluation that I think you and I need to take notice of. He says before 1994, pre-1994, we largely, Christians largely lived in what we call a positive world. Society at large retained some sense of a positive view of Christianity, a positive view of the church. And, to be, and it was known to be a good, it was known to be good to be a church-going man or woman um, as an upstanding citizen. And publicly, being a Christian was a status enhancer, per se, he says. And Christian moral norms are the basic, were the basic moral norms of society, and violating them could bring some kind of negative consequences. And then he says, then we've been slowly transitioning from roughly, he says, 94 to around 2014 to what we would call a more neutral world. Neutral world, meaning that society was neutral in their stance with Christianity. No longer did they see Christianity as a privileged status or even a necessary reality for the average American. But publicly known, to, but to be being publicly known as a Christian was neither positive nor was it necessarily negative. Um, it never had on, on their social status. Christianity was is a valid option within a pluralistic public square, and Christian moral norms retain some residual effects. But then he notes that since 2014, my guess is that has to do with Obergefell, 
um, is since then till now, we've society has become more negative when its view of Christianity. And being known as a Christian has a negative social connotation, particularly as, as um, elites' uh, um, domains of society begin to shift and change in light of new moral standards and moral, new moral norms. And Christian morality is expressly, though, in those circles, repudiated and is seen as a threat to public good. Now, you may not have to agree with all the little steps in there with Aaron Rand, but I find that process very helpful. I, think, I find that thought, thoughtful in terms of the last 40 to 50 years. I find that to be very, very helpful because I also think it goes well with a book that I've recommended to you before by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, where he does an assessment through that book that goes back two or 300 years about how we've kind of gotten to the moral reasoning that we've gotten to today, that moral reasoning is steeped in um, more of the perceived self rather than some kind of objective norms outside of us or some kind of, or some kind of cultural demands, I mean, cultural norms around us. They have moved towards more self-conceptions and what I conceive of myself as what is norm. And if you try to say anything differently, you are the one who is the problem. And so then it doesn't take a genius to figure out how we've gotten to our moment when it comes to all of the conceivable sexual and gender identities and things that go on in the world, yes? And so I found these, I found these two work really, really hand in hand together in terms of trying to assess kind of where we are in this moment today and really where we as Christians need to think well about how we live out this moment faithfully to Scripture, especially in light of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and this admonition about fleeing sexual sin there in verse 18. Because when we think about, again, verse 18, flee sexual sin, that's the center idea of this entire statement, right? It's, it's, it, he's, he's isolating um, and all of the issues and sin that's going on in Corinth Church, and he's saying something specific about the, the, the impact of sexual sin on, on the world, and particularly the impact of sexual sin on those who say they follow Jesus. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to try to tease out this idea and then, and, and from, from what we see here in 1 Corinthians 6. As we live in a culture consumed with the idea of unfettered sexual freedom. That's the culture we live in. The church is called to rest our sexual selves and identities in our life in Christ. Let me say that again. As we live in a culture consumed with unfettered sexual freedom, we as the church are called to rest our sexual selves and our identities in our life in Christ. And there's two main points that I want to talk about this morning from this text. The first one is the common delusions that even back in the Corinthian church and frankly are very much alive today regarding sexual freedom. We will look at two common delusions that Paul isolates here in verses 12 through 13. And then from there, he then goes, okay, in light of this, how do we delight, number two, as Christians as we rest in God's design for sex, if you want to say it that way, um, those the, the, the three delights for Christians who desire to rest in our sexual identities in Christ. And then we'll go from 13 all the way through the end of the chapter there, okay? So let's just kind of think about that first point, these two common delusions um, regarding, according to Paul at least, our sexual freedom. He's he deals with two phrases in these first two verses that are have been kind of, they're kind of the, 
common lore of the day, common phrases that you'd hear among the, the, the Greco-Roman world, but particularly among the, what must have been going on in the Corinthian church. One is this phrase, all things are lawful to me, a lawful for me. And he actually deals with it twice, all things are lawful for me, and then you get Paul's response, but not all things are helpful, right? And all things are lawful for me, but, 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 you, but you shouldn't be demanded by anything, be, be dominated by anything, Right? I mean, you kind of think about it, that's kind of Paul's response. He's, he's taking this one phrase and he's saying, okay, I get what you're saying, but, but are you being dominated by this? Are, they actually, are these freedoms that you say you have, maybe the freedoms you have now in Christ, are they actually freedoms or are they actually more chains? Are they actually more being dominating you? And so that's the first phrase he deals with here is, is all things are lawful for me. This common slogan that would, according to Paul, be used to justify sexual satisfaction by any means necessary. Very much akin to what we hear today, right? What, what is happening here is that there must have been some kind of growing misunderstanding of what the gospel had accomplished in Christ. And so they would use this phrase, all things are lawful for me. This is something that must have come up within the church. Like, oh, wait a minute, in Christ... Um, we're, you know, now that we've been freed from sin and the law has no power over me anymore, uh, I, I must be free to do whatever I want to do, and I'm always going to have my get-out-of-jail-free card with Jesus. I mean, we hear this a lot today. We hear this among Christians today. And there's always been two tensions within the church as it relates to God's law. You have, and, they, and they both tend to um, diminish the accomplishments of Christ on two polar opposite spectrums. You have what you might call, and I'm going to use a big word here, gnomists. Gnomists, word law. These were people who were heavy on the law, law-centric in everything. Christ's work was, is, and you see this in different ways, Christ's work is, was a mere beginning point or maybe a restarting point, for instance, like in the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church. It was a restarting point for the believer who must live or her, now, though, must live his or her life in obedience to the law with a renewed effort personal effort and religious adherence. And so the gnomists, again, this is the word law, don't get, don't, it's not that big of a deal here. Um, the gnomist is one who tends to stretch the law beyond its intended purpose, leading to a kind of an unhealthy legalism, an unhealthy fundamentalism perhaps. And certainly this was found, as I mentioned a second ago, in the Roman Catholic Church. But it's not just in the Roman Catholic Churches and their um, misconceived ideas of justification. It actually is very much alive in the evangelical church or Protestant church where we see these kind of neo-fundamentalist, neo-legalistic movements where we begin to stretch the law of God, stretch the commands of God beyond their proper order within the Christian life. In the end, what they end up doing in this is they flatten what the law is in Scripture. Because at the end of the day, if you and I can meet the demands of the law, then the law is really not all that powerful, not really all that big of a deal. It's not really that much of a standard, is it? If you and I can meet the demands of those things, then the law must not be that demanding. And that's the problem Paul has here with this statement, all things are lawful for me. So they had these gnomists, they would kind of do this. What Paul's doing with here is the opposite of this crowd. We might call the antinomian. These are the people who would decentralize or they would dismiss or they would diminish the law in the life of the Christian, okay, in the life of the church. They were in no danger of taking the law too seriously. The antinomian, right, the opposite of this is the one who downplays the role of God's law in the spirit and dwelt redeemed believer leading to a kind of unhinged license, 
License to do whatever you want to do because you've got grace, because you've got Jesus. And therefore, you don't need to take that silly sin issue really seriously anymore. And so that's likely what Paul is confronting here with this idea of all things are lawful to me. He's confronting those, this colloquial slogan that's been passed around the Corinthian church, right? Now listen, in one sense, all things are lawful for me is not a bad statement. It's not exactly, it's not totally untrue. Because you and I know as Christians that, the, the, that we don't stand under the demands of the law because of the blood of position we have in Christ, we know that the law itself does not itself stand as our standard anymore. Christ's accomplishment of the law is our standard. This is where we live in. This is what we rest in. This is what we find our identity in. So, he's, so he's, he's not necessarily saying this is wrong, but what he's saying is you've applied it incorrectly. We, we can live freely out from under the wrath of it, praise be to God. But the concept here seems to be they're leading themselves to justify or to pass over the seriousness of sin, and particularly in this context, sexual sin. Though we don't live under the demand of the law, which is right, and that's a proper way of understanding it, it doesn't mean that we no longer live under the restraint of the law. See the difference? There's a demand of the law which says you must be holy and there's only and either you either have to meet the standards of the law or some substitute has to, which is Jesus. We can't meet that demand of the law. And the law should never be used in such a capacity in the, law, in the, in the church. Friend, this brother and sister this morning, if you are struggling with sin and it's all because you've been living the crushing way of trying to meet God's demands, let me, let me just help you out here for a second. You can't. You can't do it. But that does not mean that somehow the law has no role or that we don't need to live within the restraint of the law or the good boundaries of the law as now spirit and dwell people. Paul's response then, as we noted a second ago, is twofold. Test your all things are lawful statement. And he asks, is it helpful? Does it really help you? Your freedom from the demands of the law, does it give you freedom to pursue that which is truly right and good without the fear of falling under God's judgment or falling away and stumbling? Or does your freedom in Christ now justify you to live under some false freedom? Because if your freedom you say you have actually leads you into deeper chains, it's not actually freedom at all, is it? And so that's kind of what Paul's saying. Test this statement of all things are lawful. And if it leads you to deeper restraint, deeper um, chains in sin, it's actually quite not, it's not freedom at all. And then he has another way he says it, does it dominate you? Like, we are to be dominated by nothing but Jesus. Jesus is Lord. What, 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 what Ben prayed here a few minutes ago, the Lord of all things, that we tend to take too lightly. If your freedom leads you to be ruled, that's a really key word there, by anything but Christ, that to be ruled by sin in the world, then again, you and I must ask the hard question, what Paul's asking here is, is it freedom at all? And the answer, according to Paul, is in, it is emphatically not freedom. It's not. That's the first statement. Second statement is this strange thing where he talks about our stomachs and food. 
He says here, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant for food, and God will destroy one and both of the other. That's another common phrase that was going around the Corinthian church, and frankly, it's probably more broader and culturally within the Greco-Roman world, particularly in Corinth. And, and, and commentators disagree on what exactly they, they, they means here in terms of whether or not you should just take the first part of that, the food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and separate it from God will destroy both and the other. But it doesn't really matter how you slice it up. There's one or two ways that we can read this that I think are both very helpful. Number one, it could be a phrase that means, hey, you know, it's not just like it's natural for our stomachs to have our appetites appeased with food and good food. So is it natural to just feed our sexual appetites? So that was a statement. It's an idea that's floating around out there. They're using this again to justify their sexual appetites to do whatever they wish to do. And, and, and after all, remember, they're in Christ. Or it could mean our bodies are not spiritual, i.e. that part where it says God will destroy one and the both. And since they're not spiritual bodies and they're just material and they're innately broken and stained by sin, we are free to use those bodies as just mere instruments, use and abuse our bodies in a way until they go, we go back to dust. And that, my friends, is distinctly not Christian. And it's going around the church. It's Gnostic. Gnostic is the idea that the spirit is completely separated from the material realm and therefore all things in material are nothing but under corruption and broken and messed up and therefore there's no value in anything in the material world, particularly our bodies. And so at minimum, there's a lack of understanding going on in the church of the, the, the importance of the body and particularly as he then goes into here in a moment, the resurrection of the body that is tied to the spirit. And so the, the, here's, here's what we do not want to take away from these slogans. And how we need to think about these. It's, it's, it's not a hard leap, is it? For us to take what Paul's saying to the church then and see that there's, a, there's pretty much a clear connection to where we live in now, right? We live in a world where we have Christians who are denying the truth of the gospel and the power of the gospel to resurrect us and sanctify us. And we live, or we have more and more Christians living under this kind of delusion that they are free to do whatever they want to and there's no consequences to that. And then we have Christians who bought into the idea, unfortunately, that our bodies don't matter. Just like the world believes this. It's an extension of Greco-Roman thought. And so this, this pull towards autonomy and individuality and freedom in such a way, it entices not just the world, but it entices so many Christians in the church today because this individuality causes us to reshape or distort God's law and God's creational vision for the world, particularly those who bear the image of God on this earth, you and I, human beings. And so that antinomian spirit I talked about a moment ago, it's, it, I don't know how to put it more clearly, it's a damnable heresy to believe that we are free in some unfettered way to just enjoy whatever we want to in the world without any consequences or that somehow or another we can't, that, that, that we are free to, to enjoy any of the things, uh, the sinful fruits of the world because we have Jesus. That sense of entitlement stirs our personal appetites for life's pleasures and eventually governs the moral compass of our hearts and all of reality. And we see this 
all the time. How many times, how many, how many people have you met that were said they were former believers and now they have just moved, they've shifted? How many times do we hear a story come out about some popular leader or someone who's a part of a band or some kind of church they've left and they, or they say they're still Christian, but they've massively shifted their moral compass away from what is very clear in Scripture? And so Paul, dealing with these two slogans that are out there and trying to confront the reality of them, he then spends the rest of our time, the balance of this passage from 13b all the way through chapter, I mean, verse 20, and he just shows you and I the delight, the delightful duty of fleeing sexual sin. And he gives us three, I believe, here in this passage. The first thing he gets us, the first delightful duty we get is to the delight of knowing that our bodies are for the Lord, that our bodies are designed for the glory of God. Look what he says there in verse 13b. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. In response to this, you know, your appetites and you can just feed your, your appetite any way you want to. No, friend, your body, he says to the Corinthian church, is, meant, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. I mean, think about what he's trying to say there. That delight of knowing that we are designed for something bigger than ourselves that we oftentimes, again, has been prayed. We take such little reflection upon. Such little reflection upon the body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The typical, as I mentioned ago, made a minute, made a uh, mention a few minutes ago, the, the typical Greek view or Greco-Roman view of their, the body is nothing but, but material and therefore is nothing. Which, by the way, doesn't it go congruent with people's attitudes towards abortion? Because it's just mere material. And sexuality, and the way we now are completely okay with mutilating, mutilating the body. The typical Greek view that, that runs, con, runs congruent with that Gnostic ideal, it downplays what Christians and the Jewish heritage have always prized, which is that the body is cherished, it's made, it's designed it cannot be devalued. It runs deep into the Jewish tradition, and it certainly is then runs out of that in the Christian faith into the Christian body. The Christian understands that you and I, we should understand that we are embodied souls. We are not separated. We are not separate. They're not separated from one another. That's why there will be a physical resurrection, brothers and sisters. And that's why it's so important for us to understand that we must treat and use our bodies in a way, and especially when it comes to, and we'll talk about it in a minute, our sexual integrity and our sexual identity, we use them in a way that they were designed to be used. And we know we've all failed there, or at least many of us or most of us have failed there, have we not? And that's why he says the resurrection of Christ, but Christ was raised, and so now you will be raised up by the, his, in his power. In other words, what he's saying there is this idea that your body doesn't matter, if it doesn't matter, then what's the purpose of the resurrection? No, the purpose of the resurrection is that you will one day, with all the scars and messiness that you've dealt with and you've, you've endured in this life, your body will be raised, it will be renewed, it will be res resurrected to new purpose. And, and, and friends, we can live, even though as we wait for that day of resurrection, we can live with that same 
desire today until Jesus returns. We are not disembodied selves trapped in flesh. That is the going idea in our world today, is it not? That what I believe about myself in my heart and my mind, even if it doesn't correspond with my outside body, the thing that I believe in my mind is more true than what is true of me on the outside. Friends, that kind of idea, the Christian has, has, has a response to. Not a, not a mean response, not a, not a rude response, not an ungracious response. But it says to that Gnostic spirit that is now seeing kind of a contemporary renewal in our age, it, 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 it poses this renewed threat to the church and has been, and it did back in the first two or three centuries. We must remember that we have a vital message to this moment. Do we not? We really do. We can bring something to the spirit of this age that helps bring grace to such tortured souls that live in this world. Like if you see somebody who's struggling with any of these number of different things when it comes to sexuality, and your heart doesn't grieve and cannot see and perceive how tortured they are because they really want an identity, and they're looking for that identity in, in some kind of disembodied dysphoria. And all that disembodied dysphoria will lead is deeper and deeper misery. There's a delight in knowing that our bodies are for the Lord, and the Lord is for our bodies. Second delight, there's a delight in knowing that our bodies are members with Christ. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every sin, other sin a person commits is outside of the body. But sexual immoral person sins against his own body. And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Paul switches gears here and gives us another really important thing that the Christians should remember. He should remember and she should remember that covenantal standing that we have with Christ to where we are now members of Christ. We're not members of Adam anymore. It's covenantal language we have here. You are members with Christ. He's, he's pointing to that new covenant union that we have with, with Jesus where he, is, he fulfilled all of God's commands and promises to us. And so what Paul is doing likely is he's likening, likening the sexual relations as a kind of ratification of, of the covenant between a husband and wife. Amen. Yes? We all know this. We all, we all know to some degree um, that the sexual union is, it was one of the signs of the covenant between a man and a woman in marriage. That's why weddings in Jewish times were week-long affairs, and the consummation of that marriage, meaning the physical intimacy between the husband and wife, the new husband and wife, was the consummation of that covenantal celebration. Now, to be clear, 
That's not to say that every sexual act that you and I have ever committed outside, I'm sure that people in here have been struggled with this at different times. doesn't mean that it's covenantal or created some kind of covenantal bind. It just means it's been used outside of the proper use of it. See, we don't want to be misled here. Like, this is not some kind of grotesque, like, erotic view of God's covenant with his people. But we need to see the deeper idea here. The sign and seal of our relationship with Jesus is what? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these mark, in some sense, they ratify what God has done for us in Christ. In the same way, we need to recognize that one of the signs of of covenant union between husband and wife is that sexual ratification, that physical ratification with one another. So for Paul to the Corinthian church, the misuse of our bodies sexually is a distortion of the creational order of God and ultimately distorts the, the, even more so the typological, that picture of marriage that's supposed to display what a relationship with Jesus is to be like. This is why Paul emphatically commands in verse 18 to flee sin. You're members with Christ. And when you use sex outside of its context, you are sending a different message. That's why he says there in verse 18, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the one who commits sexual sin is sinning against his body. He is saying here that sin is expressly serious, sexual sin particularly. I know that's hard to hear because we all like to hear like all sin is equal in God's eyes. And, and there's a truth to that, right? There's all sin is wrath bearing to God. But what Paul's getting at here is that, but there's a particular aspect to sexual sin that is not just provoking, but it actually has a deeper impact on God's people when we engage in it. I can tell you as a counselor that just about everybody that I've worked with has some kind of sexual past or brokenness in their life. And it is the thing, almost always, not, not always, that governs and, 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 and gives them, it's chased everything about them from that point forward. Why? Because, why is this so serious to Paul? Because he first says in verse 19, because you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now think about what he's saying there. What was the temple? The temple was where God's presence resided with God's people in the Old Testament. And now that temple is us. And remember back in our study in Ezekiel, if you were here during that time, how, much, how seriously God took his judgment against the, Israel, against the Israel back in Jerusalem because they were engaging in all kinds of pagan ideas and worship within the temple. And God said they had desecrated the temple. They had distorted the beauty of God's presence among God's people by engaging in all kinds of false worship. And that's exactly what we do when, we come, when we're engaged in sexual sin. We are distorting the beautiful display of God's presence with his people when we allow our bodies to be used and abused in any way, shape, or form sexually. And so then three, there's a delight in knowing, and this is where it gets really good, friends. Because I know we're laying it on hard here, right? 
Your body is made for the Lord. Okay, great. And that's a great reminder. Um, I'm members with Christ. But, 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 but pastor, where, where do I go if I have already been knee deep in all this? Well, here's where Paul lands it. That you've been paid, the price has been paid to redeem your body. Take heart, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He leaves this section with such hope for you and I, for different people in this room who've struggled in these in many facets here this morning. You were paid with a price, the price of Christ's own blood. And listen, we've all failed to be the temple of God, have we not? Amen? We've all failed in various ways to remember that but to, and to remember that we're designed to glorify God with, with, our, with our bodies, that there's, there's no one who has tasted the goodness of God through Jesus who's beyond the reach of his healing embrace. That we who have been found in Christ, we're not beyond that. And so I don't want to overreach here, and I said it a minute ago, I don't want to overreach here, but I've just met very few people um, who have who don't have some kind of, like I said, some kind of sexual brokenness in their life, some way, shape, or form. And they carry it through their life, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. I have worked with so many men over the years, couples, but particularly men, and I suspect there are men in this room who have come to believe that their struggle with porn is a, is a failed effort right now. I know this because I have conversations with men all the time about it. And they believe that that struggle with porn is some kind of unwashable stain between them and God. And I know that, by the way, I say that to men because that's where I, that's the neighborhood in which I travel with with men, but I know that's that's not untrue for women either. Statistics tell us that that issue is growing among women as well. But friends, that's not true. It's not an unwashable sin. Not in Christ, it's not. You can stand washed and cleansed and reminded of that and stand firmly and stand with confidence in what Christ has accomplished for me. There, there are men and women that, I, that, that, that feel like they're, 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 the way that they've done damage to their marriage, whether through extramarital activities or whatever, they feel like that their marriages are utterly irreconcilable. Not in Christ. Not in Christ. There are people who have given into or believe that they have a same-sex attraction or believe that they are identified as a gender that's not their physical makeup. And they've given themselves to live fully in that lifestyle for a period of time. And I've talked to people like, I can't come back now. I've given myself coolly to this. There's no way I can come back now. There's no way. It's irreconcilable. Not in Christ. And though I don't know anyone personally within the realm of who's a transgender person per se, I'm sure we've seen, we, we're engaged in commerce. We know. We've, you've probably seen someone in the store somewhere. Um, and they've mutilated their body in some way. And in many of the many times, that's irreparable. 
at least physically. And they believe they went too far. And one day, all the things we just mentioned here, without Christ, they're going to come to the face-to-face with their misery. And friends, our message has to be, not in Christ. Not in Christ. There is no misery with Christ. None whatsoever. Not in Christ. See, my hope, everyone's got an opinion about how we're supposed to attack the the issues with culture, yes? Here's how I hope we'll deal with it. That as the culture continues down its destructive path and finds, and they find that their desires for inner peace are unfulfilled and unresolved, that Grace Church and other churches like us will be a place for them to find Jesus and that he would be their eternal rest and their eternal peace. That no matter who walks in that door on a Sunday morning and, and, and may shock us, we're ready and willing to walk them all the way to the cross. See, once again, there, there's real peace and there's real to, and glory in God for, with our bodies, and that can happen right now, and it can happen again. If you find yourself in this place this morning, brother and sister, and you feel like you just can't be there, I'm telling you, there is hope right now. There are people in this room who know that hope all too well. They know it. And this message will appear to the world as bigoted, uncompassionate, because we will stand on the fact that we won't feed more lies to people. And we will be misunderstood and we'll be considered hypocrites and bigots for lovingly receiving people but also confronting their distorted ideas. But here's the hope we rest in. The happy Christian, and this is what we get to share to everybody, This is what you've got to share with anybody who walks into any type of sexual distortion whatsoever. The happy Christian is not one who does not struggle with the tensions of sexual temptation or any other type of temptation for that matter, but one who looks beyond them and finds our peace both with our bodies and with our spirits with, with Christ. Friends, that's what you have to offer people, right? This is what we have to offer our friends who are in these places, This is our great apology to the world. Apology doesn't mean we're apologizing for our faith. It's a defending of our faith. We're saying, I'm not that far different from you, but I'm choosing to live and rest in Christ. So let's just a couple of quick concluding thoughts and we'll be done. Sexual sin, number one, friends, is such an isolating sin. That's why it's so serious. There's something that sexual sin does to us that this other sin just doesn't tend to do. And I think that's what Paul is trying to get at in this text. The power of it comes and it just, it, just, it just cripples us with shame that just seeps into our hearts. And friends, you and I have the, the spirit and dwelt power that helps us, that confronts that lie, that allows us to walk with other believers in the light and in transparency. The reason why sin is so, sexual sin is so crippling is it whispers into our hearts th- things like this. Others won't understand. 
um, my spouse is going to be furious of me. My spouse might leave me. Now, I just want to say this. There will be consequences to sin. And there's no guarantee that anyone will not understand. There's no guarantee that things won't happen, difficult things won't happen. But I can say this, at least from my years in ministry, just about every time sexual sin has been brought to light, it's done the obvious, the, 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 the other side. God works marvelously in their lives and restores what has been broken. Two, if you struggle with some kind of sexual, sinful distortion in some way, I just want to give you a place to come into the light. Brothers, if you're walking in the headwinds of pornography this morning, email me, and we're going to get you hooked up with some other guys in this church. We're going to walk together. Same thing for our sisters. Again, I don't think this is just one way or the other anymore. It used to be primarily more bent towards men, but I think it's, we know the studies tell us it's actually gone the other way quite. And I just, I want you to know there are women in this church, ladies, who will walk with you. I I mean, I'm going to point a couple of them out, but I know that there will be lots of them. But Betty, our women's director, would love to spend time with you and help you get connected to other ladies. My wife would do that. Any of the elders' wives would be willing to do this. But that doesn't have to be them. It could be deacon. It could be anyone. There are people in this church, and they're going to say to you what I believe they're going to say to you is, you're not alone. Let's walk together into the freedom that we have in Christ. We can walk in wholeness. So friends, let's, let's agree that as we think about the passage Paul's given us this morning, that this is my last thought. Let's not chain the power of the gospel with our pride and our fear. Today is the day of the Lord. Today, the Lord is with you and me. Stand and take refuge in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us this morning as we consider all that we've heard here this morning and the difficult nature of this and how so much of this can be so misunderstood for those who are not believers and Father, we just trust that you're going to do with this message what you will and with this, with this with not this message, but this text in the life of your people and that may your people be renewed day after day in light of the truth that it's therein. So, Father, help us as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning and we thank you, Jesus. It's in Christ's name. Amen.